James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I want to start with a question, as I usually do. So when you think of genuine Christianity, what do you think of? Genuine Christianity. When you think of a real Christian, a Christian who is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ and lives out their devotion in every area of life, what is it that you imagine? We've been going through this series of the book of James, and we're titling it Wholehearted. And so when you're asked this question, what do you think of? Maybe you think of going to church. Maybe you think of reading your Bible, praying each day. And of course, all of those things are very good things that Christians do, that we're commanded to do, that we enjoy doing in faith. And tonight we are continuing our study in this book, and we've now entered into chapter 2. And in the past chapter, James has been giving us various pictures of this wholehearted Christianity. There, these pictures have maybe sort of served as tests for what genuine pure religion should look like for us, real, wholehearted Christianity. So weeks ago, we talked about suffering and what comes out of us when we are squeezed by trials, right? And last week, Christian helped us see that one of the tests of true Christianity is being a both hearer and a doer of God's word. And some of the applications of the sermon were asking, uh, how do we use our words or how do we care for those who are helpless, who, who has, for the, those who have no one to provide for them, um, and, and also how we keep ourselves from worldliness. So those are all things that I think we typically might think of when, uh, we, when we ask that question, like what wholehearted Christianity looks like, or what real, genuine Christianity looks like. And so it might surprise you then that the next test of true Christianity that James gives us has to do with favoritism. Favoritism. Thank you. Yes, that is exactly the response that God's word deserves. Favoritism. Okay, so, sorry. Favoritism is the next test that James gives us. And so our, our, my key idea, which I didn't put in your, in your notes on accident, is wholehearted Christianity has no room for partiality. Wholehearted Christianity has no room for partiality. That's our key idea for today. And I hope to, to kind of demonstrate from this passage why that is, why that's true, and how that affects our lives. Wholehearted Christianity has no room for partiality. Okay, so let's start with point one, the command. Do not show partiality. So in verse 1, James makes this really clear statement. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So we hear that and we say, okay, yes, it's a command. I believe it. But what is partiality? What is partiality? So I want to give a definition right off the bat. So the Greek word that James uses here literally means to accept according to face to accept or to judge according to the face. And so what James is trying to convey by using this word is partiality is judging someone's value based on what is external to them. 
judging someone's internal value based on external appearances. It's treating someone according to what you can see on the outside rather than what is true on the inside. One author says that partiality is a biased judgment based on external circumstances such as rank, wealth, or race, disregarding the intrinsic merit of the person involved. So it's when you judge someone by what is on the outside versus what is on the inside. Partiality is also, in some translations, called favoritism. But you might also know it by the terms bias or prejudice or judging a book by its cover. I like how the NASB translate this verse. It says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with personal favoritism. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with personal favoritism. So James is telling us, don't try and hold favoritism while your arms are full with Christianity. You can't have both at the same time. As I was reflecting on this verse, naturally, I thought of Animal Crossing. <laughs> um, and so if you've ever played Animal Crossing, um, you know that in Animal Crossing, like every realistic um, adventure video game, you have a bag, right? And you carry your items in your bag. It's a really cute bag, and it fits a whole bunch of stuff, like rocks and butterflies and, and stuff. And there's always this dilemma when you're out harvesting fruit or something, or wood or something, of not having enough space in your bag to carry everything that you need. And so in order to be able to carry the new stuff, you often end up having to throw away items that are already in your bag. And I think the idea is the same with partiality and Christianity, but on a, a much more important level. James is saying that if you try and hold Christianity or try and hold partiality in your bag, you have to throw out Christianity. Christianity and partiality are completely incompatible. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot have both at the same time. If you try and hold partiality while holding Christianity, you'll have to give up your faith. And that's a serious, serious claim. So to help us understand partiality better, James gives us an explicit example of what he means in verses 2 and 3. So he elaborates, partiality is when, he, he writes, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So in this scenario that James depicts, two men walk into church and they're presumably visitors. And the only thing that differentiates them is their appearance. The only thing that we know is different about them is who they are on the outside. And the church pays special attention to the obviously wealthy man who is dressed in fancy clothing, ushering him, to, him into a favorable spot in the gathering, while the man who wears shabby clothing is relegated to standing in the back or even sitting at their feet like a slave. And what is implied here is that treating the, this rich man with, with honor and favor could mean some sort of gain for the church. 
Maybe if he likes it, he'll stay. And maybe he'll give us a lot of money. And maybe the church will grow in power and status and influence. And on the other hand, the poor man is just a burden. He's a nuisance. He sticks out. He makes people uncomfortable. He's a threat. And all of this is decided simply on the basis of what these two men are wearing. This is partiality. This is favoritism that James is warning us is incompatible with Christianity. So this sort of partiality was a serious, serious issue for the church in the diaspora. But what about us? I'd like to think that we would never mistreat people at our church like this. I'd like to think that we'd never grovel before the feet of a rich man and scorn a a homeless man who might come to our church gathering. But could this happen? Now, you you might not actually be the, the person at the front of the church each Sunday greeting people as a pastor or as an usher, but imagine one Sunday a homeless man walks in. His clothes are tattered and blackened with soil and dirt. His feet are bare and callous. It's clear that he hasn't bathed in a long time. What's your first thought? What's going on in your mind? Maybe you're not as much of a coward as me, but I bet you it's not, oh, I'm going to go welcome him. Or I, I doubt that you and other people are rushing to get to know him, to provide for him, to make him welcome, honored, and safe. And instead, people might be asking, why is he here? Or rushing to find a pastor to maybe deal with him. And by contrast, what would happen if someone like John Piper or David Platt or um, John MacArthur or someone famous and wealthy um, uh, and maybe a Christian who's famous and wealthy walked in through the doors of our church? Would they get special treatment? I could imagine someone rushing to greet them, giving them a personal tour of our church building, introducing them to our elders, doing everything that they could to make them feel welcome, comfortable, and honored. And so, of course, it's not that we shouldn't show honor to our guests. Of course we should. But is it the case that there are certain guests that we would would receive with honor in our church and other guests that we wouldn't? And maybe this sort of favoritism wouldn't happen in our church. I, I pray it wouldn't. But what about the rest of our lives? Partiality doesn't just take place in the realm of money and riches. Partiality extends far beyond the division of economic status and far beyond the walls of our church. It shows up all the time in your life and in my life. For example, you might be tempted to judge according to popularity. It's the classic, like, you're not cool enough to sit with us attitude that you see in movies all the time. Maybe you're tempted to judge according to personality. Like when you maybe feel uncomfortable or push away people based on whether or not you feel comfortable around them or like to hang out with them. Maybe you're tempted to judge according to ethnicity. And this might be one of the easiest for anyone to fall into unconsciously, but for example, like when you are in a room with strangers, like who naturally do you just feel most comfortable with? Pastor David shared a, a similar story, but I, um, I grew up at a Chinese American church in Texas, 
And so obviously I'm in Texas, so I'm going to be surrounded by a lot of people who aren't Asian. Um, but because I grew up at this Chinese-American church, for the longest time, I didn't know that there were Christians who weren't Asian. <laughs> I, I just thought everybody who was a Christian was Asian, and anybody who was Asian was a Christian. That was just the automatic mindset that I had. And so um, I would always feel like really uncomfortable um, uh, with like my friends at school who weren't Asian because I would just keep thinking, oh, they're not Christian. They're not, they're not going to understand me. Um, and then I met a guy at school who was a Christian and he was white. And it just totally like destroyed my world. I was just so confused because he was the kindest, like most faithful friend that I had ever had in my life. And he like... Uh, he would like text me encouragements and prayer requests and Bible verses and he would check in on me and um, but he was like blonde hair blue eyes like could have been the quarterback of our football team like parents own a ranch with cattle that kind of white like he was texting and it just totally turned my world upside down when we became friends because I had I had this assumption in my mind that that Christians were Asian and Asians were Christian, which is totally ironic, like given the state of Christianity in our world, like not true. Um, but I had totally misjudged him. I had totally uh, misjud or misunderstood people um, according to what I had seen on the outside. And that's a, a silly example, but what are, the, what, what are the ways and the times that you yourself are tempted to judge people based on what is external? We all are partial people. We show partiality and we show it all the time. And James wants us to see that our partiality as it, or he wants us to see our partiality as it is and understand why it doesn't accord with true Christianity so that we can effectively kill it in our lives. And so in the following verses, he gives us further explanation of partiality, what it is and why we should kill it. So let's look at four reasons why partiality is incompatible with wholehearted Christianity. Four reasons why partiality is incompatible with wholehearted Christianity. And the first that James gives us is partiality is evil that divides the church. He writes in verse four, have you not then, speaking of the past example, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James wants us to see our partiality as it really is. He wants us to see that it is evil. It's offensive to God, it's hurtful toward others, and it's destructive for the church. And so if we read in context, partiality is exactly the kind of attitude toward people that James doesn't want us to have in verse 127 when he tells us to keep, us, to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And so the fact that favoritism is evil isn't something that maybe we readily recognize all the time. Being partial to one group of people while mistreating or rejecting another in turn is not pleasing to God, but maybe we don't see it. Maybe hands down we would say things like racism and sexism, like those, of course, are evil, can't do those. But we should also be challenged to consider the subtle forms of favoritism that are counted as evil too. Maybe it's when you judge people based on what, uh, what they wear, the way they, that they look, maybe their personality quirks or the way they act, the things that they say. 
And when you conclude that what is external about them is indicative of what is truly, intrinsically true about them, in those ways you have made yourself a judge with evil thoughts. And James says it plainly later on in verse 9 that favoritism is a sin. It's a sin and it's the kind of thing that divides people. And I'm sure that that's something that you've experienced before. It's the sting of getting left out of a friend group because you don't fit in with others. It's, it's, it's the sting of being treated a certain way because of your appearance. It's that pain you feel when your friends or the people you know, maybe they would never say it to your face, um, but they reject you because they don't think you're cool enough, popular enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, accomplished enough. And so if you've felt the pain of this sort of evil judgment and division before, why would you want to perpetuate it in your own life? This is something that we have to repent of and cut out of our lives. That's the first reason. The second is that Christianity and partiality are incompatible in that they are antithetical, or partiality is antithetical to God's character and heart. Partiality is antithetical to God's character and heart. James writes in verse 5, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And the second reason, James is trying to get us to see that judging people based on exteriors goes against the character and the heart of God. So first it goes against his character. The command against favoritism, this one that James gives, is rooted in who God is. There are passages all over the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that speak of God's character regarding favoritism. So for example, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Second Chronicles 19.7 says, Now then, let, us, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11, Paul writes, For God shows no partiality. He also writes in Galatians 2.6, um, when speaking of, of um, Peter, And for those who seemed influential in the church, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9 also says, Masters, do the same to your slaves and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven There is no partiality with him. The Bible is clear that God himself shows no partiality. His character and his ways cannot be swayed based on what you can give him. And he doesn't judge people based on what is external, but what is internal. He sees what is in the hearts of all people and he judges accordingly and righteously. And therefore, because God is not partial, partial, Partiality does not have a place in the people of God. 
So first, partiality is against God's character, but second, partiality is also against God's heart. Partiality is not just against who God is, but it's also against what he desires and what he has planned for this world. And that's why James brings up how God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. God, throughout redemptive history in love and in grace, has delighted in showing favor to the poor of this world. We see all over the Bible that that this is indicative of what kind of God he is. This passage doesn't mean that poor people are automatically saved or that you have to be monetarily poor to be saved. It means that God has a particular attentiveness. He pays attention specifically toward those who are regarded as less than in the world. His gaze and his favor are specifically on those who have been rejected by people, those who are physically and spiritually poor, those who have physical needs, but also and especially those who recognize their spiritual need. And so this reality is supposed to be especially true of Christians. They should recognize the connection between God's will and the command to not be partial. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He gives to those who are most undeserving to receive, He looks to and attends to the humble, not the powerful or the proud. He bestows honor on the ones who have been shamed by the world. He elevates those who are cast down. He cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And this is the heart of God. God isn't in the business of rewarding people who act like they have it together. He doesn't want the prideful and the powerful and the self-sufficient. God wants people who recognize their sinfulness, recognize their need, and who depend on him because they know that they have nothing in themselves that they can depend on. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is given to those who recognize that they can't earn heaven for themselves. God honors those who are spiritually and physically poor. And thus James says that you dishonor God by dishonoring those that he has chosen to honor. And that's why partiality is a test of genuine Christianity. Partiality is a test of whether or not you've really grasped the gospel because it it reveals whether or not you've grasped the heart of God. The world says God helps those who help themselves. The world says work hard enough and you'll be happy. Make a name for yourself and you'll be worth something. Every other religion says do enough and God will be happy with you. 
But the cry of the Christian is, O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you, only Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to save the rich and the powerful, the righteous, or the people who have it all together, but he came to save the sick. He says it himself in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the spiritually poor, the ones in need of saving. But favoritism forgets this and reverts to the world's way of thinking. It places value on externals, on money and beauty and self-righteousness and accomplishments and power. And it allows those to be the metrics by which we treat other people. And in this way, it rejects the heart of God. We, ha- we cannot forget who we are before God. Because if we do, we will be led to partiality. We cannot forget that we are terrible sinners, that we have no right to approach God because he is holy, and because he's good. And the fact that God sent Jesus to save us while we were still sinners should humble us so thoroughly And yet in partiality, when we regard people according to what is external, we live as if we haven't grasped that gospel grace. That's the second reason. The third reason is that partiality dishonors people. Partiality dishonors people. Verse 6, James writes, You have dishonored the poor man. The third reason why we should reject partiality is because it dishonors other people. And this idea kind of hangs off the last point. Rejecting God's heart and his character will lead you to reject and dishonor people. And by dishonor, he means like you'll make a little of them. You'll shame them. You'll treat them as if they are worthless. If you forget or reject what God values, the poor in the world, you'll end up spitting on those people who God counts as valuable to him. You'll treat the people who God loves as trash. And James' logic makes sense. When we regard people according to the face, when we look at the external, we won't, won't remember that pe- who people are on the inside. We'll forget that there is much more to a person than what is presented to us visually. So for example, when you meet people who are not as financially wealthy as you, you'll see tattered clothes and you'll forget God's favor on people who are looked down on in the world. When you meet people with developmental disabilities or people in our bridge ministry, for example, maybe you'll see misshapen facial features and behavior that seems strange and scary to you. And you'll forget that God never makes mistakes when he creates people in his image. When you encounter outcasts at school, you'll see bad haircuts and hand-me-down clothes and out-of-style t-shirts. And you'll forget that all people are created in the image of God and have dignity 
and deserve respect just by being human. When you meet rich and famous people, like your favorite musician or K-pop idol or actor from your favorite TV show, you'll forget that this person, too, is a sinner in need of grace, who is going to face eternity in hell if Jesus doesn't save them from their sin. Favoritism and partiality forgets what is true about people beyond what you can see. And in this way, we dishonor people when we show favoritism. The fourth and final reason that James gives us is partiality blinds us to the truth. It makes us foolish. Partiality makes us foolish. He says, are not the rich ones who, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So here James is trying to get the church to see that given their circumstances, their partiality is so foolish. They're not seeing things as they truly are. And in their, in their case, the love of money, the desire to be blessed financially, blinds those in the church from seeing the rich as they actually are. The rich in their context are the people who were oppressing Christians. The rich people were the ones causing division in the church. The rich were the ones who were blaspheming God. And James's point isn't to demonize people who have money. There are lots of faithful Christians in the world who, who do much with their, their finances to um, the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. But what James is getting at is how silly their, their favoritism is. They're so blinded by the draw of money that they can't even see that the people who they're lifting up and showing partiality toward are the very people who are wronging them. The, the, pe- the people who they grovel before are the same people who are blaspheming the name of Jesus. And so James is telling them, wake up. You're crazy. Partiality makes you do crazy things like giving special treatment to the enemies of the church. Now, nobody tries to be foolish, right? Nobody wants to be blinded to the truth. But the recipients of James's letter have obviously missed or turned a blind eye to the fact that the ones that they're kissing up to are the ones who are oppressing and mistreating them. And what this teaches us about favoritism is that people don't show favoritism for no reason. People show favoritism because we want something. We show favoritism because we want something. The desire for favor from rich in the church was so strong um, for James's recipients that they were even willing to, to fall before their enemies to get it. And so in their case, it was money. They wanted financial prosperity. But what about you? What drives your partiality? When you're at school, and you're trying to get on the good side of that one friend group, what desire is driving your partiality? Maybe it's a desire for the approval of others. When that one awkward kid who kind of makes everyone feel weird comes up to you and tries to talk to you, what desire is driving your avoidance? Maybe it's that you don't want to get lumped together with the people who you think are weird. When you hang out with the people who are only with the people who are just like you, 
What desire is driving your exclusivity? Maybe it's to try and feel safe and comfortable. Maybe it's to feel like you belong. We are partial because we are idolaters. There's something that we want, and we'll do what we want to get it. Now, I think that this is the exact reason why James calls Jesus the Lord of glory in verse 1. The Lord of glory. Humans are inherently hungry for glory. We're hungry for what will capture our attentions and satisfy our desires. One author writes that human beings are hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. We cannot help it. And John Piper writes, the world aches to be awed. That ache was made for God, but the world seeks it mainly in watching movies. Humans hungry for glory are made to feast on the glory of God. And James says that we are supposed to find that feast in Jesus, who is God's God's glory revealed. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus is Lord, the Supreme One who rules over all things. Jesus is God himself in flesh. And so when we're captivated by the glory of Jesus, we won't be captivated by lesser glories. When we're satisfied in having Jesus, we won't hunger for lesser things. And so I think that's subtly James providing the solution to our favoritism. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. We must be more captured by the glory of Jesus Christ than whatever else might be drawing our hearts toward partiality. And when we are set on enjoying the glory of Jesus, when we're focusing on him and captured by him, we won't be caught up in the foolishness of favoritism. We'll see people truly as we ought. And so James wants us to know and live in the reality that partiality and Christianity are antithetical. They don't mix. Oil and water. We cannot hold partiality and Christianity at the same time. There is no room for it in wholehearted Christianity. But instead, the Christian who is truly aware of his own spiritual poverty and truly captured by the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ will not be a spiritual hypocrite in their, in their um, favoritism. He or she will not judge others in their poverty while he himself is poor spiritually. And so what James is trying to tell us is if you see yourself rightly, if you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace, and if you see Jesus rightly, if you see him for all that he is, if you've truly grasped gospel grace, then you won't make room for partiality in your Christianity. So as I reflected on this passage for my own life, I was humbled by this question. Would Jesus be welcome at Lighthouse Community Church? If Jesus were with us in the flesh, would he be welcome in our church? Would he be welcome in our youth group? 
James wants, to see, wants us to see that we're partial people. We've judged people's internal value according to what is on the outside. So would Jesus be welcomed by our church? The Bible says that Jesus was the man of sorrows. He was the son of a carpenter, the one without a place to lay his head. The prophet Isaiah describes Jesus in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus is God himself. And veiled in his humble humanity was the whole of the infinite radiance of God. He was the full glory that Moses asked to see, and he was told that he would die if he saw it. Jesus is the word made flesh, the one who fulfills the law, who is righteous and earned perfect righteousness for his people, and who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the preeminent one, the supreme one, the one by whom and for whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. Jesus is the one who everyone will worship before in heaven. All who are saved will worship for eternity. But to the human eye, if you evaluated and judged Jesus according to what you could see on the outside, you would totally miss who he truly is. You would get Jesus terribly wrong. Friends, we are so in the habit of evaluating and judging people based on their appearances that we would surely scorn and reject Jesus if he were to walk in the doors of our church. And how ironic is it that that same Jesus evaluates us and judges us rightly He sees that we are sinners, that we are condemned before him, and yet he does not reject us. By contrast, God has overlooked both our worthlessness and our sin and and our lack of works and accolades to impress him, and he has moved toward us in love to offer us salvation in Jesus Christ such that we are no longer dead in our sins, but alive in him, such that we have worth in him, such that we are loved by God, such that we are spiritually rich, not because we earned for ourselves righteousness or riches, not because we worked hard to get it, but because God loves us. And therefore, if we have truly grasped the grace of the gospel, if we truly recognize that we are sinners in need of grace and that God has moved toward us in love to give us salvation and new life in Jesus, we won't be partial. 
So have you grasped gospel grace? Have you grasped gospel grace? If you have, then you'll look past what is external and you'll treat people as God sees them. Let's pray together. God, we are people who very easily only see what is true outside and forget everything that you have declared to be true about people on the inside. We are quick to judge with some intent to gain for ourselves. And we are quick to forget that we ourselves are sinners. We have no right to judge. We forget that we ourselves are condemned apart from from you overlooking our sin and apart from you giving us life in Jesus Christ. We forget to recognize, recognize and remember that all people, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like or where they come from, are created in your image. We forget that all people deserve dignity and respect because they are human. We forget that there are people who have been saved just like us from our sin. People who have been remade in Jesus Christ, people who are new creations just like us. And we are quick to define and evaluate people according to how they act, what they look like, how they dress, how they treat us, what they have. And even in the most subtle ways, God, we forget that this is the sin of partiality. And so God, I pray that as we examine our own hearts and our lives, that um, the guilt of partiality would weigh on us, but only for the sake of us being able to run quickly to Jesus and for us to remember that we are forgiven, that we are washed clean, that we are not ruled by our sin, but can be freed of it by your grace. And that your love in moving toward us while we were still sinners also motivates us and enables us to move toward others, to not regard them according to what is external, but to treat them as you would to honor them because they are human, to see people as sinners in need of grace and to offer the free gift of Jesus Christ to them. And would you help us, God, to uproot every instance of partiality in our lives? Would you help us to be humble as we consider and as we reflect, as we pray through partiality and how it manifests in our own lives? And would you be honored in um, how we live transformed, wholehearted Christian lives that are centered around you and rooted in the gospel and not motivated by, I must work harder or attitudes of, of self-righteousness, but um, 
that, that are motivated by hearts of, of freedom that, that live in, in, in the joy and the freedom of the gospel. So would you help us in this time as we reflect in our small groups? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.